Part One, Chapter Four of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part One, Chapter Four. Such a lovely bite. It is a keen, clear, frosty winter's night and I am sitting here in a cheerfully lighted dining-room, only a few feet from the roaring fire. An immense chasm sometimes yawns between afternoon and evening, and it seems scarcely credible that, only an hour or two ago, I was out on the river in an open boat fishing. It was a glorious sunny afternoon when we pushed off. The great hills around were at their greenest, and the only reminder vouchsafed to us that to-morrow is midwinter's day was the glitter of snow away on the top of the mountain. The water around us, reflecting the cloudless sky above, was a sea of sapphire, out of which our oars seemed to beat up pearls and silver. Arrived at our favorite fishing-grounds, we lay quietly at anchor, and for a while the sport was excellent. But, later on, things quietened down. The fish forsook us, or became too dainty for our blandishments. The sun went down, over the massive ridges. A hint of evening brooded over us. The blue died out of the water and the greenness vanished from the hills. Everything was gray and cold. As though to match the gloom around us, we ourselves grew silent. Conversation languished, and laughter was dead. We turned up the collars of our coats and grimly bent over our lines. But the cod and the perch were proof against our cajolery, and would not be enticed. At length my hands grew so cold and numb that I could scarcely feel the line. My enthusiasm sank with the temperature, and I suggested, not without trepidation, that we should give it up. My companions assented to the abstract proposition, but, with that wistful half-expectancy so characteristic of anglers, did not at once commence to wind up their lines. I was, therefore, just on the point of setting them an example when one of them exclaimed excitedly, "'Wait a second! I had such a lovely bite!' That was all but it gave us a fresh lease of life. For half an hour we forgot the hardening cold and the deepening gloom, and chatted again as merrily as when we baited our hooks for the first time. It was a bite, that was all. But, oh, the thrill of a bite when patience is flagged and endurance ebbing out. It is because of a certain cynical tendency to deride the value of a bite that I have decided to spend the evening with my pen. A bite, says somebody with a fine guffaw, and what on earth is the good of a bite, I should like to know? A bite is neither fish, flesh, fowl, nor good red herring. A bite is of no use for breakfast, dinner, tea, or supper. Bites can neither be fried nor boiled, measured nor weighed. A bite, indeed. And once more the cynic loses himself in laughter. That is all he knows about it, and it merely supplies us with another evidence of the superficiality of cynicism. The critic is sometimes right, but the cynic is never right, and the roar of laughter that I hear from the cynic's chair, as he talks about bites, is, therefore, rightly translated and interpreted, a kind of thunderous applause. Why, in some respects, a bite is better than a fish? Only very occasionally does a fish look as well on the bank or in the boat, as it appeared to the excited imagination of the angler when he first felt the flutter on the line. I have caught thousands of fish in my time, but most of them I have dismissed from memory as soon as they went flapping into the basket. But some of the bites that I have had, I catch myself wondering now 
what beauteous monsters they can have been well and how many did you catch i am regularly asked upon my return oh a couple of dozen or so but oh i had such a bite and so on it is the bite that lingers fondly in the memory that haunts the fancy for days afterwards and that rushes back upon the angler in his dreams oh i've lost him one of my companions called out from the other end of the boat this afternoon he got off the line just after i started to draw him in such a lovely bite i'm sure it was the biggest fish we've had round here this afternoon of course it was the bite is always the biggest fish there is something very charming something of which the cynic knows nothing at all about this propensity of ours to attribute superlative qualities to the unrealized it is a species of philosophic chivalry it is a courtesy that we extend to the unknown we do not know whether the joys that never visited us were really great or small so we gallantly allow them the benefit of the doubt the geese that came waddling over the hill are geese all of them and as geese we write them down but the geese that never came over the hill are swans every one and no swan that we have fed beside the lake glided hither and thither half as gracefully a young girl comes to my study she is tall and comely her face reveals a quiet beauty but she is dressed in black and the marks of a great sorrow are stamped upon her pale drawn countenance my heart goes out to her as she tells her story it was so entirely unexpected so totally unthought of this sudden loss of her lover just as she was dreaming of orange blossoms for her own hair her fingers were employed upon a wreath of lilies for his beer as she sat in the church on that dark and dreadful day the organ that she fancied greeting her with a wedding march set all the aisles shuddering to a dirge and her unfinished bridal array had been all laid aside that she might garb her graceful form in gloom as i looked into her sad eyes swollen with weeping i fancied that i could see into her very soul and scan the secret picture she had painted there the happy wedding with all its nonsense and solemnity its laughter and its tears the pretty little home with his chair of honour like a throne facing hers his homecoming evening by evening and the welcome she would give him the children too the sons so handsome and the girls so fair what art gallery contains paintings so perfect i saw them all these lovely visions hung with crape and as i saw them i reverenced our sweet human habit of attributing impossible glories to the unrealized and what about the parents of the baby i buried yesterday are there no pictures in these stricken souls worth viewing as you pass through these chambers of imagery and view one of these exquisitely painted pictures after another you have the whole splendid career mapped out before you such triumphs such honors such laurels for his brow the glory of the life that would have been is spread out before their fancy sketched in the fairest colors thus tenderly do we set a halo on the forehead of the unrealized thus charitably do we let the fancy play about the fish we never caught let the cynic hush his sacrilegious laughter there is something about all this that is very human and very beautiful and just because it is so beautiful it is worth analyzing this thrill of joy that i feel when the fish tugs at my line i shall try to take the sensation to pieces in order that i may find out exactly of what it consists i suppose that really the secret is i am pleased to feel that my bait has some attraction for the fish that i know now to be there it is horrid to keep on fishing whilst your mind is haunted by the suspicion that your hooks are bare for they are baited in such a way that they make no appeal to the fish that may be swarming around you 
the sudden bite settles all that and you feel every faculty starting up to vigorous life once more now as a matter of fact there are few things more pathetic than the feeling that sometimes steals over the best of men that there is nothing in them to attract the affection the friendship and the confidence of others the classical instance is the case of mark rutherford how his lonely soul ached for comradeship i wanted a friend he said how the dream haunted me it made me restless and anxious at the sight of every new face wondering whether at last i had found that for which i searched as if for the kingdom of heaven god knows that i would have stood against a wall and have been shot for any man whom i loved as cheerfully as i would have gone to bed but nobody seemed to wish for such a love or to know what to do with it here is the poor fisherman who feels that he has no bait that the fish want it was not as though he caught the perch whilst the cod fought shy of him i was avoided he says elsewhere both by the commonplace and by those who had talent commonplace persons avoided me because i did not chatter and persons of talent because i stood for nothing there was nothing in me but just as he was giving up mark rutherford felt the line tremble and knew the ecstasy of a bite he was suddenly befriended oh the transport of it he exclaims it was as if water had been poured on a burnt hand or some miraculous messiah had soothed the delirium of a fever-stricken sufferer and replaced his visions of torment with dreams of paradise the world holds more of this sort of thing than we think a writer who cannot get readers a preacher who cannot get hearers a tradesman who cannot get customers it is the same old trouble fishing 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 until the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint fishing 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 until the world seems to be pouring its contempt upon the unhappy fisherman fishing 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 until a man feels that there is nothing in him nothing in him nothing in him and the contempt of his fellows leads to the anguish and hollow laughter of self-derision oh what a bite means at such an hour blessed are they exclaims poor mark rutherford who heal us for our self-despisings of all services which can be done to man i know of none more precious but even a bite may do a man a great deal of harm unless he thinks it out very carefully it is certainly very annoying after waiting so long to feel that the fish has come and gone again a fisherman must guard against being soured and embittered just at that point it was the tragedy of miss haversham everybody who has read great expectations remembers miss haversham in some respects she is dickens most striking and dramatic character poor miss haversham had been disappointed on her wedding day and in revenge she remained for the rest of her life dressed just as she was dressed when the blow staggered her when pip came upon her years afterwards she was still wearing her faded wedding dress she still had the withered flowers in her hair although her hair was whiter than the dress itself for the dress was yellow with age and everything she wore had long since lost its lustre i saw too says pip that the bride within the bridal dress had withered like the dress and like the flowers she had no brightness left but the brightness of her sunken eyes i saw that the dress had been put upon the rounded figure of a young woman and that the figure upon which it now hung loose had shrunk to skin and bone once i had been taken to see some ghastly waxwork at the fair representing i know not what impossible personage lying in state 
once i had been taken to one of our old marsh churches to see a skeleton in the ashes of a rich dress that had been dug out of a vault under the church pavement now waxwork and skeleton seemed to have dark eyes that moved and looked at me poor pip and poor miss havisham miss havisham had lost her fish just as she was in the very act of landing him and she had let it sour and spoil her and pip was frightened at the havoc it had wrought the peril touches life at every point it especially affects those of us who are called to be fishers of men it is a great art this human angling and needs infinite tact and infinite subtlety and infinite patience and above all it needs a resolute determination never on any account whatever to be soured by disappointment when i am tempted to wind up my line and give the whole thing up in despair i revive my flagging enthusiasm by recalling the rapture of my earlier catches what angler ever forgets the wild transport of landing his first salmon what minister ever forgets the spot on which he knelt with his first convert in the long and tedious hours when the waiting is weary and the nibblings vexatious and the bites disappointing let him live on these wealthy memories as the bees live in the winter on the honey that they gathered in the summer-time yes let him think about those unforgettable triumphs and let him talk about them they make great talking and as he recalls and recites the thrilling story the leaden moments will simply fly by the old glow will steal back into his fainting soul and long before he has finished his tale he will find his fingers busy with another glorious prize. End of Part 1, Chapter 4